Hi there, this is Pastor Tim. I'm the minister at Eastside Church. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, and inclusive. And we are thrilled that you found our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church community, you can visit us at www.eastsideatl.org. Well, again, friends, good morning. It is a joy and a privilege to be here with you in worship, even as we continue in this digital uh, way of connecting with one another. We count it as a privilege to have the technology available to us to be able to meet in this way. And if you missed the, the opening welcome, just another quick reminder to fill out that check-in form that you can find located in the the live stream comment section. This essentially lets us know who is out there in cyberspace participating in worship. Otherwise, we don't have any idea who the names and the faces and the people are who are collectively gathering with us. So take a minute, fill that out. Uh, it's easier if you don't try to div divert your main screen from uh, what you're watching to do that, but to grab a, a phone or a tablet or another device to to let us know that you're here through our check-in form. We, this morning, continue on our series that we launched at the beginning of the new year, Mosaic Reflections from the Wilderness. And this morning, the liturgical calendar kind of offers to us a, a moment in the wilderness as we experience Jesus on the mountain in that, that sort of famous yet often not all that well-known liturgical ex experience or celebration of the transfiguration. Most of you have probably never, you know, sent a transfiguration card to someone or went over for transfiguration dinner after church, yet it is still considered by the church one of the more important of the yearly festivals or um, yearly liturgical moments that we as a congregation or as a, as a faith tradition in the Western world especially, uh, collectively consider on this day. And the transfiguration always in the Western calendar comes the Sunday before Ash Wednesday and the beginning of Lent. So as I preach, I hope that you can begin to uh, bring yourself and your mind and your heart into that space of preparatory consideration as we're going to be beginning the 40-day the, the journey of Lent. Um, very shortly. Our reading this year in the lectionary for Transfiguration comes from the brief Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. We're going to begin reading in verse 2. And as I read, I invite you to embrace a, a posture of receptivity where you can, in your physicality, feel as though you're experiencing the words being read in, in a way that is, is sacred and is reverent for you. And as I read, I invite you to listen for, for God's living word for you and for us today. Mark writes that six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. Then Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white such as no one on earth could bleach them. There appeared to them Elijah with Moses. They were talking with Jesus. 
Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Peter did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them. And from, from the cloud came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. Then as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So Peter, James, and John, they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Friends, the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, creator, in these moments as I preach, I ask that these words that I have prepared might be your word for your people in your time. I pray, God, that you would speak through them as and where necessary, speak in spite of me. And God, as I preach, I ask that the collective meditations of all of our hearts across time and across space and the words of my mouth that all of it would be as a a delightful song of joy and of praise to your heart to your ears God all of this we ask in the strong name of the Messiah our Savior Jesus the Christ and everyone said and or typed amen Well, I had to look this up because I was curious, but apparently it was 2018 when the term doom scrolling actually became like an actual thing. I remember when I first came across the phrase doom scrolling and I kind of immediately did a really good job of discerning exactly what it meant because the person who was talking to me about it was like, you know, that's exactly what it is. It's... It's scrolling through your news feed on social media and sort of hopping from one news story to the next news story to the next, all of which are kind of uh, relaying the apocalyptic, scary, dark, whatever nature of reality outside of your computer screen and your home in this world. Doom scrolling. And I'm not sure what year it was that Facebook started to pick up on me and, and to kind of create this algorithm, but there was a time, a season in which my, my news feed became almost entirely new. Or, yeah, my news feed became almost entirely like actual news. All the cute pictures of the kittens had gone goodbye, and it was just like this story after that story posted by this person with these comments, and I would sometimes log in and, and have like five browsers open, all of which, any of the titles of probably which could have brought upon any of us like devastating anxiety and depression almost immediately. And Facebook kind of became this like vortex, this black hole of, of sort of the intensity of the world around and I understood exactly what the word, phrase, doom scrolling meant when it came about because I, it was probably at that time that it was an area of very needed reform in my life, quite frankly. 
maybe some of you can relate, sometimes naming things, bad things, naming them can give us the freedom and the liberation needed to go, oh, that's what's happening there. Now I can begin to work on that. I can begin to move past it because I have named it. I begin here this morning because if we zoom out a little bit from our transfiguration text and actually read sort of the, the last portion of chapter eight, our Messiah, our, our Christ, could possibly be accused of sort of his own version of first century doom scrolling. Only he's not scrolling, he's more naysaying, doomsaying, doom predicting. And we encounter this really odd interaction at the end of chapter 8. And essentially, it begins with Jesus and his disciples, and he asks them this question, who do people say that I am? That's a fair enough question. You're an itinerant rabbi traveling throughout the, the backwaters of Israel. Kind of curious. Like what, so when I'm done talking, like what do people say? And the disciples reply that there's kind of three main categories. Some people think that you're John the Baptist, other people tend to think that you're Elijah, and other folks tend to think you're one of the smattering of ancient uh, Jewish prophets. Now, if you've read Mark, then you know by chapter 8 that, that John the Baptist has already been executed by Herod, but you have to remember this is pre-photography, right? So there's no pictures of people, so unless you'd seen John the Baptist's face, right, you wouldn't necessarily know what he looked like, and Jesus was related to John the Baptist, so maybe they had some familial, familial fam, familiarities. Whew, didn't anticipate that. Um, maybe they looked a little bit alike. So people could have thought that maybe Jesus was John the Baptist if they didn't believe that he had been executed or was dead. Remember, there's no photographs of people. And you could kind of, again, make a similar argument with Elijah, Elijah, who had lived hundreds and hundreds of years earlier in Israel's past, but again, no photographs of what he looked like. And Elijah was understood to, to appear, to reappear somehow, right around the time that the, the Israel's Messiah was coming, going to come onto the scene and this messianic revolution was going to take place in, in Israel. So, so if, if it was the time of the Messiah, then Elijah should be showing up somewhere. That would make sense. So for people to say that Jesus was Elijah is not a crazy idea either. Again, they didn't know what Elijah looked like, and he was supposed to be showing up. And it seemed like maybe some messianic kinds of things were beginning to take place. And then one of the other assortment of prophets... Jesus' ministry was clearly quite prophetic. He engaged as a prophet, like a prophet. He was a prophet in his ministry. So to, to sort of wonder, maybe he was some sort of recapitulation of Isaiah. Jesus liked to quote Isaiah. Maybe he was one of the others. And all of that speculation that takes place at the end of chapter 8 is kind of nice and detached for the disciples until Jesus zooms the question in from who do they say that I am to who do you say that I am? And Mark doesn't offer us sort of like an array of answers that the various disciples give. That would have been kind of interesting if one disciple was like, oh, I say that you're this or I say that you're that. Uh, and we don't know if that happened or not. Mark is famously brief in his 
form of writing. All we get is that at some point in the conversation, loudmouth Peter speaks up and says what he thinks is the case. And he says, you are the Messiah. If Peter was in, you know, 19th century Sunday school class, he would have gotten the gold star. Good job, Peter. Answers Jesus. And Jesus quickly replies to Peter in the text in this sort of like seemingly hushed tone, and he says, don't tell anyone. And he seems to be kind of bringing his, his in, inward group, the 12 disciples, in, into this like mystique of his messianic mission. He's like, huddle in, lean in. Peter, thank you. Good, right answer. Don't tell anybody. Let's keep this to ourselves. He implores them to keep it on the DL. But then Jesus goes on, and here's where things get really thorny and tricky really quick. Jesus says to, to them, and seemingly back out loud again, like the huddles back up so others can hear them. Jesus says, the son of man must undergo great suffering, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed. Mic drop. After three days, rise again and be killed, and after three days rise again. And I don't think that it's an absurd thing to say that after Jesus said the, word, the words and be killed in ancient Aramaic that his disciples maybe probably didn't hear anything he said after that, right? Their minds were so, like in the vortex of the doom scrolling of like, Jesus just said that the Messiah must be killed and Peter just said that Jesus was the Messiah and Jesus just said, good job, Peter, which means that Jesus is accepting that designation and then going on to say that the Messiah is going to be killed. We're all pretty upset, Jesus, <laughs> which we see when Peter, the sort of, sort of proto-leader of the, the disciples and future church and apostolic movement, Peter seems to kind of grab Jesus by the, by the shoulder cuff of his robe, which might be dangerous in retrospect, but anyway, he, he grabs Jesus and pulls him aside into a private scenario, which was a good move on Peter's part because you didn't want to rebuke your rabbi publicly. That's a very, very bad idea, but it was also a pretty risky idea for Peter to do what he did, which is to grab Jesus, pull him aside, and essentially say, Jesus, you're off here. We collectively know what the Messiah is to do, and no one's ever said what you're saying. You're speaking out of left field. This, there's lots of different ideas about the Messiah, but the one you're talking about isn't like a thing that people talk about. So what are you, what are you doing? Here you have us, this group of people, we've given up our lives, we're following you, and you're, you're beginning to accept your designation as the person that we've all suspected that you are, but now you're redefining what that means, and that's not cool. That's not okay, because we all signed on under the old assumptions about the Messiah, and you're switching the script. In other words, the disciples are upset, they're scared, and they're seeing their futures kind of ambivalently and being rocked. They don't know what this means. If this means that for Jesus, what does it mean for them, the, the disciples? So Peter tries to correct him. As the mouthpiece of the group, he tries to correct the rabbi, and it goes swimmingly, except it doesn't go swimmingly. It's that famous, uh, that famous line where 
where Jesus and Peter have the most awkward of interactions, the interaction that I literally don't know how you come back from, where Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, parents, in your parenting, I'm just going to say, like, don't, don't, don't be like Jesus here. Okay? Don't say that to your loved ones, to your children, because, again, I don't know how you come back from that. At what point does Peter stop being Satan? And at what point does Jesus, like, I, I, I don't know. But Jesus goes on after saying that to say to Peter, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Jesus is now upset. So we have upset disciples, we have an upset rabbi, and we've got, like, back and forth here going on that's, that's pretty wild. And that, that, that was wild enough that Mark, in all of his brevity, still found it important to include in his short gospel. And then Jesus seemingly continuing to be kind of riled up. If you read the end of Mark chapter 8, he preaches this pretty fiery sermon about the necessity for any of his followers to carry their own cross. If they're going to follow him, they're all going to suffer and experience a similar fate to his, which is exactly what the disciples did not want, did not want to hear from him. So Jesus kind of doubles down in this sermon that probably would not have, have received very many likes on social media, if you will. Now, with that as the backdrop to the transfiguration, I think it colors and shapes and slightly changes the way that we read the story. Because my guess is, at the beginning of chapter 9, things are still quite tense between Jesus and his disciples. And there's still a lot of uneasiness, there's a lot of animosity and confusion and mistrust happening right now between the disciples and their master, the master and their disciples. Jesus, yes, called his future lead disciple Satan. And he asks his innermost three to go up the mountain with him. Now, that's cool, I guess. Peter, James, and John, would y'all, I need you guys to go up the mountain with me. Now put your, put your mind in their minds and wonder, like, they're still in a fight most likely. Are they, like, a little bit nervous that he's going to pull, like, a little bit Abraham and Isaac on them? <laughs> like, why are we going up the mountain with you, Jesus? What is this special trip all about? Because there's no explanation in the text, which tells me, I think, maybe, they walked up together in silence. Maybe the disciples, as they walk up the mountain, are wondering to themselves, is this it? Is this our last inter interaction with this guy? And then after this is done, we're out of here? Is Jesus wondering, have I, gone on, have I come on too strong, too fast? Have I laid out too much of what's to happen too quickly in that they weren't ready for it? And now, was there, was there these kinds of internal dialogues taking place? Maybe, maybe Peter was like... <laughs> calling his therapist. My rabbi just called me Satan. I don't know. I don't know. But what I, I do know is what we're given in the story. And that is that as they're heading up the mountain, at some point they either reach a clearing or they reach the top. But Mark tells us that Jesus and his three disciples have this crazy, remarkable, intense hard-to-fathom, kind of mind-altering, mind-bending experience. They have this experience of this sort of unmediated moment with, with God's presence on this mountain, in and with them, among them. 
And Mark's really careful and clear not to just give us sort of like general language to say like, yeah, they went up on a mountain and had a God experience. That's not what Mark says at all. Mark, Mark says that they go up on the mountain and they have a very particular experience, which is they see their rabbi who they've just been in this questioning, frustrated dialogue with, talking with who? But Moses and Elijah. Now, why would, why would that happen right now, right after the last scene? Well, it makes a lot of sense, actually, because there was just this back and forth questioning of whether or not Jesus knew what he was talking about. And now the three innermost disciples are watching Jesus in a dialectic conversation of some kind with Elijah and with Moses, and I really wish I knew what they were saying. Mark does not tell us, which is unfortunate, but I think is kind of the point, because it doesn't really matter what they're saying, because the point is that they have this open dialogue. They're talking. And Moses, if you remember who that is, Moses was the, the liberator of the ancient Hebrews from Egypt, who then, after bringing the, the Israelites out into the wilderness, goes away up onto the mountain to receive the law from God. Moses receives Torah from Yahweh, their, their God. So Moses is commensurate with the capital L law, right? Religion, the, the, the way of being Jewish. Moses represents that to the people. He's a big hitting icon in that consciousness, in that mind. And then Elijah, Elijah is like the summary of all the prophetic tradition. He's the most powerful, profound, um, best remembered, probably one of the, the, the stories that, that Elijah engages in are, are awesome and, and very memorable, many of them. And so the people would have known Elijah and thought of him as like this preeminent, this preeminent type of prophet. And of course, Elijah was the one who was supposed to show up when the messianic movement was taking place. So Jesus is up on the mountain with his disciples and they have this very particular kind of religious experience on the mountain that doesn't drive them in a different direction with this Jesus, but actually helps this Jesus to double down in their Jewish consciousness, making him that much more credible, making him that much more believable, making his claims about his own death on a cross that much more frightening, right? Because it's one thing if he's crazy. It's one thing if he's off his rocker. Then they can just dismiss him and go home and start their lives back over. But the dude's talking to Moses and Elijah. And they don't seem like they're talking Jesus down or yelling at him. They seem like they're having a conversation of equals, which is really interesting. So maybe Jesus is going to come back from that conversation and say, I was wrong about the, the death and execution part, y'all. Moses and, and Elijah set me straight. That would have been wonderful in Peter's and the disciples' opinions. Which is exactly not what happens. No. No, Peter and James and John are realizing that this Jesus, this dude's, the, this dude's legitimate. This, this is like heightening everything. It's making it that much more intense. And Jesus now has the law and the prophets backing him, Moses and Elijah, which means that that what he's saying matters. And not only did they just kind of like realize that probably on their own, but when the giant cloud rolls in and the voice booms from heaven, similar, I guess, to Jesus' baptismal story, 
What is the last thing that the giant booming voice says but listen to him? Well, snap. I don't want to do that. He just said, like, everybody wants to be his follower, has to pick up their cross and do hard things. And life's already hard, right? Like, why, 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 why this? Like, why are we doing this? And why does it have to be this way? I'm sure Peter, James, and John are experiencing, like, all these feelings at once and are just, their, their minds have to be spinning because it's affirmation on the one hand, but what is being affirmed on the other hand? And they probably still forgot the whole, like, and I will be raised in three days part. Mark actually tells us that they never heard that part. They just like, their brains just like skipped over the and I will be raised in three days part. So all they were meditating on, were fixating on, were doom scrolling on was what? The suffering, the sacrifice, the persecution, the death parts. It was like all the downward scroll. Y'all know what I'm talking about. It's like I've gone from ecology to, I don't know, like, world politics to presidential politics in my country to like my local city politics i've just hit all the areas and then like an article on like general the general like whatever state of human beings right now and and here's where i think it turns and i think this is where it preaches for us today in 2021 it's where the transfiguration hits me a little bit different this year especially because I think that Jesus was actually really pastoral at the end of chapter eight and the beginning of chapter nine. I think he was reading his disciples' inner needs really well. And I think Jesus knew they need something. I'm gonna pull them away and we're gonna, we're gonna do some, some work. And so Jesus pulls them away. They go up on the mountain. They do this work together. And they have this experience with Moses, Elijah, and this booming voice from the cloud. And frankly, I think it's exactly what Peter needed. Because we're told, like, Peter is so excited, right? He's, like, losing his mind. He's so excited that, that he just blurts out, how about I make three dwellings? And then Mark goes on to be like, they didn't know what they were saying or doing. <laughs> but he's like, maybe I should like do something. Make, like, I'll go grab some sticks and like make a thing. And I can feel like I'm participating. But I think more than that, I think Peter was like relieved in those moments of bliss and of mystery on the mountain because Peter was like, okay, so maybe we can have the best of both worlds, have our cake and eat it too. Jesus is the Messiah, Yes, we see that being affirmed in this transfiguration experience. And maybe by my Petrine, Peter-like, creative rhetoric, I can actually talk Jesus into starting a monastic community on this mountain and waiting out this whole, like, world thing. And then maybe we can go down the mountain, like, at the last moment, like when, when God and the kingdom have all like come in their force and power. Maybe we can set up on the mountain and engage in a bit of spiritual escapism, to put it in a, a sort of negative way, or maybe in Peter's mind, perpetual affirmation from God that things are okay and that life is good and, and 
it's all going to be okay. But I think Peter here, I think he's superhuman. I don't mean superhuman, I mean superhuman, right? Because I think he's very similar to probably the way that we would be and very likely the way that we are in our lives. When we hit a good streak, do we try to end it sooner in life? Do we try to like give it away? Do we try to like exit that and go to a harder thing quicker? No. When we hit a good streak, we want to figure out what, what are we doing right here and how do we make this last as long as possible? How do we perpetuate this? And Peter's like, let's make this forever till kingdom come. Let's build a monastery on top of this dang mountain and Moses and I are going to get good at playing cards. And Jesus is like, I get it, guys. I get it. You're scared. I'm scared. Like, I get it. But nowhere in any of our calling is to start a monastery up here. Like, we just can't do that. It's not what we're supposed to do. You'll get bored in a week anyway. Peter wants to keep Jesus on the mountain. Peter wants to keep James and John on the mountain. Peter wants to keep Moses and Elijah in their presence and have a little, like, a little experience of heaven on earth that will last until this whole messed up earth thing figures itself out. In other words, Peter wants to basically er eradicate he and Jesus in the movement from society. Peter's trying to pull them away from the world. Peter's trying to escape and to live out his life in bliss with Jesus. And I think that preaches because I don't know about you, but like oftentimes I think the the response we can have to doom scrolling, right, is to flip the script the other direction and say, well, I'm just going to completely disconnect and go off the grid and move out to, I don't know, Wyoming or something and live on a ranch and live off the ground and off the grid and not engage with society. And I think we can all at some level see how that has a level of, of attractiveness, I guess. But that's not the example that our, our Christ gives us. Our Christ gives us this example of engagement, facing reality, facing the world, knowing what's going on, and then going up to the mountain and not necessarily even telling everybody when you're doing it. Jesus is always leaving. He's always going away to pray. He's always escaping to mountaintops. He's escaping in the early parts of the morning. He leaves all the time, but he always comes back. Jesus always comes back. He never stays gone. He never goes up the mountain and stays. And I think that one of the generational problems that we face with the, with the culture of our own United States, given the kind of geography that we have with oceans on both sides of us, is that sometimes it can be tempting for us as a nation to want to just shut ourselves off from the problems of the rest of the planet and keep all, all that bad stuff at bay to the east and to the west. I mean, Canada's cool. They're not going to do anything. And Lord knows we're trying to trying to now rectify, rectify our situation with our southern neighbors in a positive way, but the point is, is that we have this impetus to, 
to go the other direction from doom scrolling to shutting everything off and not paying attention to anything and being completely blissful, ignorant people. And I don't think that's the call of Christ either. I think we're called to somehow find a rhythm, a rhythm of engagement and then a rhythm of pulling back and rejuvenating and allowing our souls to be filled and, and remade and to be made whole. And then when we're feeling healthy again, to walk back down the mountain and go back into the town and continue to heal and to cast out evil and to be purveyors of justice and to make our world a more good and beautiful place. And I just don't think there's any way to read Jesus' ministry that affirms any type of escapism in this life. Absolutely a rhythm of rest and recovery and renewal. Absolutely, you need to, to just turn everything off and check out regular intervals in your, whether it be in your day, your week, your month, your year. That's very healthy and absolutely necessary. And if you're not doing that, then try it. It, it will change your life. But we cannot just move out to Wyoming and get off the grid and just leave the world to burn. That's not the call of the Messiah on the Messiah's followers. He says, no, y'all. You can build a retreat center, yes. You can't build a monastery. You can build a retreat center, yes. But you can't live there. You can visit. You can come up the mountain and you can go back down the mountain but you can't live there. You can't escape. We're right around the corner from Lent, friends, and I'll be honest, I love going to the mount, any kind of mountains. I love the mountains. Any, any time and any excuse that I get, I will escape to the mountains, but we've got to come back. And as you enter into this Lenten season, if you do not have a mountain in your day, I would encourage you to ask yourself what that might be for you before the kids are awake, before your partner's awake, before you have to go into the office or log on to Zoom, get up and try something this Lent. For some of you, like, work on a practice of meditation. For, for others of you, you're like, I'm not doing that. So, so find a spiritual book that challenges your way of being and, and read a little bit of it every morning. Find a podcast that addresses kind of the nature of being there's a podcast called On Being that you could listen to. Um, and so much more. Journal, prayer journal, prayer walk, prayer run. Sometimes people are like, well, you, you always talk about like this discipline of praying, Tim, but we, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what, the, what I'm doing. And I just say, I, I, I say two things. First is Jesus gave you a prayer to pray, and it's really um, short, and it's also quite comprehensive. It's called the Lord's Prayer, and I would just start with that. If you've never had a practice of prayer, just get up a little bit early in the morning, write that out in sections, and then do a little bit of like commentary around each of the phrases, how, how it might apply to your life or your day. The other thing you can do is if you've noticed, there's a rubric, there's a, a, a way in which our liturgists on Sunday mornings pray, and it's right out of the United Methodist Book of Worship. It's right out of the ancient Christian liturgies, and we start with the, the church that we are a part of. We start with our, our spiritual family. And 
We pray for those people that we know need our prayers in our community, who's sick, who's lost someone, who's struggling, who needs a job. And then we work our way out to our community, wherever our immediate community, then our city, then our state, then our nation, then our whole planet. And Church Universal, the giant Christian church across the world, and then we zoom it all the way right back into us as personal individual people. Where is God calling me to confess, to change, to be challenged, to be new, to be different? And that prayer rhythm actually works quite lovely in a quite lovely way every day. So I would encourage you, friends, to find your mountain, but don't build a monastery on it. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Spirit, amen and amen. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this week's message, and we look forward to seeing you soon. If you listen from afar and you would like to support the work that we are doing in East Atlanta and on Atlanta's east side, you can visit our website, www.eastsideatl.org, and find our giving portal there. <laughs>